Good morning. Who's excited for Christmas? Who, who has checked out James Taylor since I last got up here? I was getting texts this week because like, uh, I actually got a text from the guy who's playing drums this morning of him, his cat sitting on a chair listening to James Taylor in front of the Christmas tree. Uh, and if, uh, sorry, if you're in junior high, that's grade six to eight. Uh, Colton is at the, out in the foyer or at the back. I can't really see. Uh, but junior high conversations is going to be ha- happening in the foyer this morning, uh, not in the staff lounge. Uh, so yeah, like Pastor Chris said, we're starting a new series this morning called Womb and Board. It's the inappropriate biblical stories of four scandalous women that delivered the deliverer. And we'll see that as this uh, series unfolds, that scandal is recast as righteousness, that God will triumph over every human obstacle to make sure his goodness triumphs over all evil. And that's really the story behind the Christmas story. So in your Bible, you have four Gospels. In your New Testament, you got the Old Testament, you got the New Testament, then you got four Gospels, and Gospel means good news. And those four books really tell the good news uh, about Jesus, his life, his teachings, his message. And in two of those Gospels, Matthew and Luke, we have something called the genealogy. And if you're anything like me, that's the part you're reading your scripture, you're like, boring. And you're just like, flip the pages. Who wants to read that? Uh, but we don't, when we read a genealogy now, and it's just a list of you know, the, so-and-so is the parent of so-and-so, this parent of so-and-so, and we're like, what is, the, what is the point of this? Like, that belongs in a cemetery somewhere, not in my Bible. But back in the day, uh, genealogies were important because they, they spoke of someone's uh, identity and their credibility. Their identity and their credibility. So today, you know, you might put identity and credibility in what you do for a living or in certain letters you have beside your name or I went to school, I got this degree, and we have ways of talking about credibility. In the biblical times, they talked about credibility uh, often through genealogy, where you came from, who your parents were. Um, so this is who you are and it's your worth, if you're worth having around. Genealogy is really just a say, way of saying prove it. Prove it. Prove who you are. Prove that you come from good stock. And when we think about Christmas, we, th- we often think that, you know, warm fuzzies, James Taylor, Christmas trees, Christmas presents, uh, and, you know, we have these very, you know, we watch The Grinch, and this is family-friendly, but actually when you get into the biblical story, it's not all that family-friendly. It's not as G-rated as we uh, think it is. And we see that particularly when we start to pay attention to the genealogies that happen in Matthew and Luke, because the genealogies are trying to tell us a story. Yes, they're... They're the beginning of the Christmas story, but they set the backdrop for the Christmas story. They tell us who Jesus is, his identity, his credibility, what he's all about, what the story of God uh, is all about. And so we're going to focus in on the genealogy of Matthew in this series, Woman Board, and we're going to focus on four uh, females uh, that are in this genealogy. And so let's read uh, the first chunk of the genealogy. We're not going to read it all this morning, but this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. This is usually at the point where you go, boring, start falling asleep. Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, if you're looking for a baby name, if you're having a baby, that, that's a great one. I ha- it has not taken, I have not met an Aminadab in my life. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, 
whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. So there you have the first half of the genealogy that Matthew gives before he goes into the Christmas story. So Matthew and Luke, they tell the Christmas story. Matthew and Luke both uh, refer to the genealogy of Jesus. They have a different purpose in each of their genealogies, but Matthew has a purpose in telling this. And so he is indicating to the ancient writers to establish the identity, the credibility of the Christmas story of who Jesus is. And what's amazing is in this genealogy, he includes foreigners, which was, which was not the thing to do. If you're writing to a Jewish audience, which Matthew was, he includes foreigners in his genealogy, non-Israelites, or what, what's referred to as Gentiles. He also includes women, which is not something you would do in a genealogy. And we'll talk about that in a second, but women were not seen as having the same status in culture as men. And so if you're wanting to prove somebody's stock, you wouldn't include women in your genealogy. And for sure, you wouldn't include two prostitutes in your genealogy. If you wanted to prove Jesus' stock, don't talk about the prostitutes that are in his genealogy. But Matthew did that. We're talking about one of them this morning. So this is why Matthew's genealogy is fascinating and why there's a story behind the story. And so we're focusing here on Tamar. In verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Everybody say Tamar. So I know Christmas is a time where you go visit your family. And uh, how many of you guys have messed up families? No, I just, you know. <laughs> so depending on your family, your family's story, uh, you know, I don't know your story, but Christmas is often a time that, that many people dread, right? They, they, there are certain parts about it they like, but then there's a lot of parts that they don't like because they maybe see family members they haven't seen in a long time, depending on what those stories were, uh, might indicate whether that's a great encounter or not. And so I know some of you have messed up families because I know your families. Uh, and I have a messed up family, but I'm not going to talk about it because my family watches all my sermons online after I preach them. So uh, we'll leave that alone. Just kidding. I love you, Mom and Dad. Now, uh, so I, I guarantee you, no matter how messed up your family is, your family probably isn't as messed up as Tamar's family. And so if anything, you're just going to feel good about yourself and your family this morning. Uh, when you leave. So we're talking about Tamar, often referred to as Tamar the prostitute or Tamar the righteous prostitute. That's kind of an odd thing to have on your business card. Uh, this is who I am. But we miss, we actually miss the beauty and the depth of the story when we just typecast Tamar as a prostitute because it oversimplifies the story and it actually doesn't tell the story. Tamar's trying to make her way in a world that is defined by two realities. And if we're going to understand the story of Tamar, we have to understand the, the pieces, uh, the role that these two realities play in the story. And the first one is patriarchy. Everybody say patriarchy. Patriarchy basically means the boys rule. The boys are in charge. The boys tell the girls what to do. Women have no agency. They have no legal rights. They are expected to submit to men, submit to their husbands, submit to their fathers, and... Under patriarchy, the woman's primary goal was to produce sons for her husband. It was the... I don't think I heard that. Did I? Did I? <laughs> no, yeah. 
It was the primary contribution to her family. It was the way of ensuring that her husband's lineage and his legacy would continue on past him. So society determines a world's value at this time by counting her sons. Because to die without a son was actually to erase your family from history. So uh, we need to be clear here that patriarchy is not the biblical message. It's not actually what the Bible promotes. But patriarchy is the countercultural backdrop in which we encounter the life-affirming, countercultural good news of Jesus. So this is the backdrop. The biblical world is governed by patriarchy, and it's also propped up by the second piece called primogenture. Everybody say primogenture. So all this really means is sons are ranked by order. And we know this. If you're a middle, ch- any middle child, children in the room, I'm a middle child, um, and I know this. Sons are ranked by order. My, my brother, older brother was spoiled, and I was forgotten, and we beat up my younger brother. That's just how, <laughs> that's just how it works. Not, not a lot has changed in 2,000 years. So primogeniture basically just means that there, there is an order of priority with the children. And if you are the oldest, you have... Uh, you've hit the jackpot. The oldest has authority over his brothers, and so he's something like a crown prince of the whole family, and it sucks for the middle kids because the older kids gets the lion's share of the inheritance. Half the inheritance goes to the older kid, and it gets split uh, the rest of the way between the other sons. So for you and I, Tamar's story makes very little sense unless we understand the role of patriarchy and primogeniture in the story. So let's go back at the story that Matthew is referring to when he drops this bomb in the genealogy, mentions a woman, foreigner, a prostitute. And if we're paying attention, we say, why is he doing that? What's happening in the story behind the story? And so to know that story, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 38. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. And at the time of Shelah's birth, they were living in Kazib. In the course of time, Judah... The dad arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother, Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. So this was a rule at the time. Your brother dies, you have to marry his wife, produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Whoa! You thought you were just coming for a warm, fuzzy Christmas sermon? Man, okay, you thought you had family issues. This is just like, this is just getting into it here. So let's straighten out this weird family tree. Once you hear the story, once you understand patriarchy, primogeniture, you'll never read the story quite the same way again. In order to understand the point of the genealogy, we need to understand this story of Tamar. 
In order to understand the story of Tamar, we need to recognize that Tamar's story is a hiccup in the bigger story of Joseph. Are you guys following me? Okay. So Tamar's story is in the middle of multiple chapters in Genesis where they're telling the Joseph story. And so Joseph was a son of Jacob, and Jacob uh, was renamed Israel. So when we talk about Israel, the name Israel, uh, it comes from Jacob. And his story, the story of Jacob, is kind of a, you know, it's like a, it's a deceptive story. He was the second born. He was number two, not number one. But he was very deceiving, and he actually stole the birthright of his brother for a bowl of soup. Yeah. So that, that brother gave up his entire inheritance for a uh, broccoli and cheese goodness. Must have been good soup. So he takes second place from brother number one. He becomes number one. And then he needs to find himself a wife. So he goes for uh, this beautiful girl named Rachel. And the Bible describes Rachel as having a lovely figure and was beautiful. Cha-ching. Swipe right. I like Rachel. So he, he says, I, I, I want Rachel. But you fall. So, so he, he works off. For, for Rachel's father-in-law, seven years, or father, sorry, uh, his future father-in-law, seven years to pay for this marriage. But the dad tricks Rachel. Somehow Jacob gets tricked into marrying Leah. And Leah, if you, it says in the Bible, it says that Leah has weak eyes. Which means, in our language would be, she's not, she's not easy on the eyes. Swipe left. She... No go. I want Rachel, not Leah. Leah was the oldest, though. Uh, and so the dad tricks Jacob, and he marries Leah, but he doesn't know it until after the wedding night. So I, like, I don't understand how this happens. I don't know if it was a lighting issue at that time. Maybe, the, maybe they were similar to Sun West. They had candle issues going on, and uh, wasn't working, so they had to, you know. He, anyways, he didn't know it was Leah until he wakes up in the morning, and he realized that he was tricked, and he goes to the father and said, what happened? And he said, uh, well, I'm not going to marry my younger daughter without marrying my older daughter. And you, if you want Rachel, you can have her too, but you got to work uh, another seven years for Rachel. So he does that, and now he has Rachel and Leah. So that's the backdrop. Um, so he doesn't just have two wives, though. He does have those two wives. He, also, he actually has four wives because each of them have servants and their role in the whole story is to be baby-making machines. It shows you how high of a role that women played in that society. So here's the picture. you got Jacob, who is married to Leah and Rachel, and then you have, uh, you have their, uh, their servants there. So if you think the names look familiar, that's because this is, the, this is where the tribes of Israel come from. you got the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, and then way back at the end... So you see the, order, the birth order there, right? We were talking about primogeniture. Way at the end of the family line, you got numbers 11 and 12. You got Joseph and Benjamin. And if you know anything about the story of Joseph, you'll know that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Why is this? I thought you were supposed to love the first most. The first was the favorite. The first got the share of the inheritance. The first was the special one. Uh, but the Bible is very clear that Jacob loved Joseph. Reuben's the number one son, isn't he? But Jacob 
His first love was Rachel, right? He loved Rachel. And Joseph is Rachel's first son. And so you can see how Joseph was actually the favorite son of Jacob, and this would grind the older ten brothers. And if you know the story of Joseph, you know that Judah takes control of the story, and he makes up uh, a story that Joseph got torn apart by animals, and he brings this technicolor dream coat to, uh, uh, to, to Jacob and gives him the story, but he actually sells his younger brother off into slavery. Come on, amen. Nice, nice, nice move. Uh, he's becoming a human trafficker. He, he sells his younger brother. Why is he doing that? Why does Judah take control of the story? Why does he take the lead? Isn't he sung number four? Why is he taking charge? Well, he, be, he might be number four in the birth order, birth order, but he's actually number one, and here's why. Judah's three older brothers had disgraced their father and disqualified themselves from being honorable sons. Reuben, son number one, actually slept with Billa, the father's concubine. I told you your family's going to feel awesome after this. Uh, this was against the rules, and this disqualifies him from being the patriarchal leader in the family. You just, you can't do that. So he's, he's gone. Uh, and then we got sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, and they went to avenge their, sinners, their sister's death, or their, not her death, their sister Dinah was raped, and they went to avenge her, and they got a gang of guys together, and they went to the Shechemites where it all happened, and there was this bloody massacre, and it raised tensions in the region, and it created danger for the tribe, and that wasn't okay. Okay. Um, and so they were deemed unfit for leadership and disqualified. So strikes two and three for numbers two and three. And so Judah is the new what? Everybody say number one. The new number one. Uh, sorry, I don't... How did that get in there? I just Googled new number one, and this showed up on my... Showed up on my screen. Man. So Judah is the new number one, and Tamar enters into the story, into Judah's broken family, all the angst, all the daddy issues, all the family pain of who, what belongs to who, all the expectations of carrying on the, dig, the dignity and the legacy of the family. She's set up in this arranged marriage, and remember that she's viewed as a piece of property. This is the story that Tamar enters into. And so we have Judah. As we read earlier, Judah has three sons. The first son is Ur. And his biblical debut was cut a little short. It says, in the course of time, Judah arranged for his first son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. So he's gone. Then Onan is told by Judah to marry Tamar. So Onan, the second son is now technically the new number one in Judah's family. So uh, Tamar is married to Ur. Ur dies. Onan's responsibility is to marry Tamar. And he has to produce a son. Onan is the new number one. Everybody say number one. Unless somehow his brother's wife produces an heir. So Owen is the new number one unless Tamar, his brother's wife, produces an heir. And it's actually Onan's responsibility in his job to ensure that that happens at this time. But Onan does the math. If my brother's wife has a baby, then that baby becomes the brand new 
number one. And because he's the number one guy right now, he gets half of the inheritance. If there's another number one, that half would go to the other kid, and he would only have two-thirds of the inheritance because he would have to split, or a quarter of the inheritance because he'd have to split it with Shelah. So he says, I can't do that. He, I need to look out for number one. I need to look out for what I want, my future. The legacy of my dad doesn't matter. What's in it for me? So what does he do? He uses Tamar for pleasure and he abuses her, having no intention of fulfilling his duty. And God doesn't like that and he strikes him down. And so now we only have one son left. Judah sees the situation, says every guy that, that Tamar is with, every one of my sons that Tamar is with dies. So I'm not going to do that the third time. Maybe this Tamar lady is bad news. I'm not passing her on to my third son. So what does Judah do? He sends her away without any intention of giving her to his last son. He sends her away as used goods. He sends her away to fend for herself in a world where she has no rights. So fast forward, and Judah's wife actually dies. He's lonesome, and he's on a road trip. And there's a prostitute on the corner and they sleep together and he has no idea that the prostitute he sleeps with is his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Time out! This is messed up, right? Yeah, sometimes we don't realize how messed up the Bible is. This is the backdrop to the biblical story. Was she doing it because she was looking for a career change? Is that why she disguised herself? And stood on the street corner? That's not why. No. Was she doing it because she's a temptress? Couldn't help herself? No. Was she doing it because she wanted to get even with her father-in-law, Judah? No. That's not why. Because, so we have to answer the, que- the answer question, then why? Why would Tamar do this? And the reason she would do it is because Tamar, the righteous prostitute subverted cultural expectations of herself and stood up for what was right in God's eyes. And what was right in God's eyes? That a woman that was caught in a patriarchal system, a woman that was reduced to property, a system that used her, a system that abused her, that system was called out for what it was and it was evil. And this is part of what the gospel does. It exposes things in this world that are evil. It it exposes the broken and abusive systems in our world. And Tamar is determined to not let the boneheadedness of Judah and his family stop the redemptive plan that God has in store that he wants to bring about through her family line, through their family line and hers. She has the belief and the faith that there's nothing in this story as messed up as it is that could stop God's redemptive plan. Tamar did end up protecting the family line, this royal line, and this would be the line that would lead the way to Jesus the Messiah. So you fast forward. Tamar gets pregnant from this encounter with her father. I told you, it just keeps getting better. From this encounter with her father-in-law. And remember, Judah had no idea that the prostitute that he was with was his daughter-in-law. The father-in-law's friends go and tell him and say, hey, guess what happened to your your sister-in-law? Sorry, your daughter-in-law. Whoop. It's not that messed up. Guess what happened to your daughter-in-law? She got pregnant out of wedlock. And Judah says, she deserves to die. 
So he confronts her, and in that confrontation, he realizes that she's pregnant with his baby and that he's actually the dad. He recognizes his hypocrisy, and he says this, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shalah. What's happening here is that Judah gets it. He finally gets it. Tamar's actions not only reveal Judah's hypocrisy, but now it actually paves the way for his renewal and redemption. So when we typecast Tamar as just a prostitute, we we miss the countercultural redemptive thing that's actually happening in the story. Now remember that the story of Tamar and Judah is wrapped up in the larger story of who? Of Joseph, right? So Tamar unlocks the key to this whole story. And so Judah, rewind, sold into slavery, or sold his brother Joseph into slavery, lied to his dad. Through a whole twist and turn of events, Joseph ends up being a governor in Egypt, having a position of great power. God gives Joseph a dream that there's going to be a famine in the land, and so it gives the opportunity for Joseph to prepare for the famine. Joseph does that, and then the famine hits the land, and all people from everywhere come to Egypt for food, for relief. So Joseph's family, Judah's family, come to Joseph for food, for help. And so the family shows up, and who's leading the pack? Judah, the new number one. Judah comes asking for food for the whole family. Joseph sees this, and he's moved, and he's concealing his identity. And he tells his brother, if you want food, bring me the patriarch to your family. Bring me your father. I want to see your father. He really wanted to see his own father. But leave me with collateral. Leave me with Benjamin. Now, why did Joseph ask for Benjamin? Why does he care about the 12th son? You know why. Why son son number 12? Because his first love was Rachel, and Joseph was gone. His father thinks he's dead, so Benjamin is actually the father's number one. Now listen to the interaction that Judah has with Joseph, even though he doesn't know Judah's, even though Judah doesn't know Joseph's identity yet. Genesis 44, and now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Is this the same person? Is this the same Judah? Do you recognize the change? This is the guy that went from having daddy issues, grasping for his place, only caring about who is number one, his own interests, and now he's saying, I will sacrifice myself for my own brothers, my family, my dad, my God. What happened? Well, I think this encounter with Tamar is what happened. That's the turning point in the story. And when Judah gets more concerned with God's priorities being number one and stopped concerning about himself being number one, the story turns. All of a sudden, the story is redeemed. So all that to say, 
It's a lot of stuff. It's one big messy story. This is the backdrop of the Christmas story. And Matthew, in his genealogy, wants you to see that God chose a marginalized woman, a foreigner woman, a woman with a reputation of being a prostitute to advance the purposes of God in a dysfunctional family and a dysfunctional cultural system. I don't know your story, and I don't know your family story. Maybe it is more messed up than that. You might have Ur's, Onan's, Judah's in your own story. You might be battling with it against your own past. You might have a reputation that you have to battle against. You might be battling systemic family issues. I don't know. But I believe that the reason that Matthew puts the story in the genealogy of Jesus is because he wants us to know that no one is beyond being in the genealogy of Jesus. No one is beyond being a part of the family of God. No matter your story, the Christmas story is one where the story of God is more powerful than our individual stories. That's the Christmas story. It's the story where the God of the universe invades the world, interrupts the trajectory of our lives, and invites us to write a new kind of story with God in the center. It's a story that invites us to stop looking out for number one, because we've seen through human history that that never actually works. And we place God, the creator, as number one and watch him redeem the stories that we're a part of. Now, as we close this morning, a Crossings Dance is going to come and do a final number, and it's a, it's a song called How He Loves. And the song was written by John Mark McMillan, and this, um, the song was written after John Mark had lost one of his closest friends. And he was trying to figure out how to deal with that grief and that pain. And what came out of him was not even just a song of grief, but it was a song of, radical, of, of a radical recognition of the amount of grace and love that God had for him. The story of Christmas is a recognition of the radical grace and love that God the Creator has for each one of us, that He would send His Son, that He would come in flesh to earth to interrupt our story so that we would never have to live apart from his grace and love in our lives. So my prayer is as we let the music and the lyrics and the dance kind of wash over us, that we would become increasingly aware of this God of love that wants to interrupt our lives. just want to say thanks to Crossings Dance for being here and blessing us this morning. Let's give them one more uh, hand there. So I hope as you listen to that messed up biblical story that, uh, and recognize that that story is in the genealogy of Jesus, I think God did that on purpose. Because the good news is that none of our stories are beyond the redemption, love, and grace of God. And we can enter into God's story at any time simply by saying, like Judah had to do at some point in his story, say, I'm going to stop looking out for number one. God, I want to make you number one. And live my life following your leading. And so if you've never 
made that decision before, you can make that decision at any point. You can pray uh, and ask God to be first priority in your life. He's the one that created you. He's the one that has given you life. And he has grace and redemption and love waiting for each of us when we turn to him. I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, Our prayer teams are available at the end of service. If you'd like prayer for anything, they would love to pray for you. If you've never uh, said a prayer like that, they would love to pray for you. If you've said a prayer like that a thousand times, they would love to pray with you. Maybe there's pieces of your story that you're like, I'm not sure this is redeemable. Maybe there's things in your story that you don't have control in, that you're not sure what good could come out of it. I didn't read it, but at the end of the Joseph story, one of my favorite passages in the scriptures, uh, shortly after there was that encounter with all the brothers and uh, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers and they're afraid that Joseph is going to kill them because they sold him. And he's like, no. He's like, what you intended for my harm, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. And that's the beautiful thing about the gospel is that God can turn any story that we think is unredeemable, what good can come out of the story, and somehow he makes something beautiful come out of these things that we don't think are that beautiful. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for uh, the power of this good news, the power of your presence in our lives when we actually give our lives to you, our hearts to you, and we uh, live for your glory, your purposes instead of our own. Lord, we thank you for that, how that starts to rewrite our stories, how we start to become a blessing to those around us. Lord, and I think of some of these family stories that each of us are a part of, intertwined with, And Lord, I pray this Christmas season would be one uh, where our identity and our credibility and our foundation wouldn't be built on the families that we all come a part of, but the families that we're invited to be a part of, which is your family. So we thank you for the hope of Christmas. We thank you that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us wherever we go. May we be aware of that as we leave this place. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.